Hey, and welcome to this week's episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast. My name is Fernie, and I'm the pastor here at Mid-City Church, and I'm so excited to jump into this series on Revelation. So today we're going to talk about why context matters. I hope last week's conversation as we introed uh, the book of Revelation was helpful, and so uh, get ready, because here we go. So one of the things that I enjoy doing at airports is to put my headphones on and just people watch. Have you ever done this? It's actually quite a bit of fun because I don't know if you have noticed or not, but people display so many emotions at an airport. I remember one time as I sat at my terminal, I saw this guy running as fast as he could down the main hall, and I assumed he was late to his flight, which is a fair assumption, but it turned out he was just running really fast to the bathroom. I realized in that moment that when we eavesdrop on someone else's situation, context really matters, right? So let me explain what I mean. If that guy that was running to the bathroom, if he was with anyone, the person he was with would have known exactly where he was going. But for me, an outsider watching all of this unfold, all I could do was make assumptions about the situation. And it turned out that without the context, my assumption was completely wrong. Does this make sense? So let me give you another example. Last week, I was sitting in on a midweek Lenten chapel service, and the preacher looked at me in the middle of blessing the communion elements, and he gave me a big smile and and winked. And I assumed he was just happy to see me there. But again, context matters. When I went and talked to him afterwards, he told me that he was very anxious and very nervous as he led the service, and that having a friendly face, a friendly smile in the room helped him calm his nerves. So without context, I would have never understood what was actually going on, right? Okay, let me give you one more example. A couple of years ago, my mom and I got into a big argument over something extremely minor, and I could not understand where all of this anger was coming from, but to be completely honest, we both got really upset, and we ended up saying things to each other that hurt. And then, after giving each other some time to breathe, she finally spilled the beans. She was having some health issues that were bringing up a lot of anxiety within her. And so she got abnormally upset, not because I did something wrong, but because she was struggling with so much that even a minor disagreement like this uh, felt like a huge and heavy burden. See, context matters. It's easy to make assumptions about people and their actions and even their words based off of our own experiences. But the reality is that the only way to truly understand what is happening is by having context to the situation. Now, the book of Revelation works the same way. One of the most difficult things about reading through the book of Revelation is the understanding that unless we have done previous research and study, the majority of people do not understand the context of Revelation. And because of that, so many assumptions have been made about the book, most of them wrong. Now, I know, uh, I know of people who have read the entire Bible, except for the book of Revelation, because they have been taught to be afraid of this book. But again, context changes everything. I also know of people who talk about the end times and point to the book of Revelation to back it up. But again, context matters. When you dive deeper, to, uh, you learn that either the book of Revelation does not say what people think it says, 
or, uh, it's under, or understanding its context really changes everything. I even know of people who see this book, the book of Revelation, as a threat from God to sort of scare us into following God. But I have to tell you, once again, that context tells us something completely different. So what's the context of the book of Revelation? Well, for starters, it's important to understand that in the very beginning of the book, John, the author, very clearly tells his audience that this book is a revelation. He begins by saying these words, a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave me. In other words, these aren't his words. It's God speaking through him. Now, another thing that's important to understand is that the word used for revelation in the Greek uh, is the word apocalypsis, which we translate to apocalypse. And this is important because at the time, people understood and knew without any hesitation that an apocalypse, a writing that was an apocalypse, was a symbolic vision that helped reveal a healthy perspective on situations, especially in light of the knowledge that God's kingdom would one day be established. Now, it's also important to note, again, for context, in verse 3, John calls this writing a prophecy, which is also a term that most people of his time would have understood easily. This prophecy that John is talking about correlates to the Old Testament understanding of the prophets and what they were called to do. Now, very simply put, prophets were given a message from God to share with a certain group of people. So usually the message was to repent or something bad would happen. And the, the interesting thing about the prophets is that their role seems to be very repetitive throughout the Old Testament. Each time a prophet appeared, people would repent, they would turn from their ways and begin to put their whole trust in God. But then after a while, they would forget and they would begin to do things their own way. And that's when another prophet would show up and uh, come back and realign the people with God once again. So based on this information, we know that the book of Revelation is what we call an apocalyptic prophecy. It's a special kind of writing. It's a kind of writing that will use symbolism from the past and symbolism from the present to speak to a current situation. And all of this is just in the first three verses. Now, here's something else that's important to remember. The early church would have been very familiar with this type of writing, with uh, uh, apocalyptic prophecy. Now, while we're only familiar with two books in our Bible, the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, the early church would have had many different apocalyptic prophecies available to them. So while this may be hard for us to understand, the writings would have been very easy to understand and decipher for its people of its time. Again, context matters. So let me give you some more context to this book. This book is believed to have been written around 95 to 96 CE during the reign of Emperor Domitian. Now, Domitian was a cruel leader towards early Christians. At one point, he launched a persecution against Christians, and he would even charge them with the different crimes, including, believe it or not, atheism. Now, it's not atheism in the way that you and I think about it. Uh, the atheism they were charged with was a, was a failure to praise Domitian as Lord and Savior of heaven and earth. And so, right, if you, if you don't praise Domitian as Lord, then you were an atheist. So John is writing to Christians who are living in the midst of this persecution, trying to stay strong and hold on to hope in a time when it really doesn't seem possible. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper into the context now. Aside from this persecution, Domitian had a need to make his power and his might known. Uh, 
And, and one of the ways he did that was that Domitian instituted what became known as the Domitian Games, which was basically the Olympic Games of its time, except that a major part of it was to display his own strength and remind people of their own place in society. So the structure of these games was very strategic. For starters, they would start with Domitian sitting at the throne that everyone could see. Then on the other side of him, uh, and all around him really, there would be priests that sat there. Each priest with a golden crown on their head, with a different name on that crown that was used for Domitian. And each of them would represent a different region in Domitian's empire. Now, these weren't priests like you and I know today. They were priests who were in charge of making sure that people knew that Domitian was Lord. And it was their job to make sure that people in their region worshipped Domitian as a god. So before the games would begin, Domitian would point his direction to each of the priests, and he would, in front of the whole crowd, tell the priests, each one, uh, one at a time, of the things that his region had done well and the things that his region had uh, done wrong or needed a fix. And he would always tell them, if you don't do this, there's going to be consequences. So why am I telling you all of this, and what does this have to do with the context of the book of Revelation? Well, at the beginning of chapter 2, John writes a letter to seven different churches and basically tells them two things. First, he tells them of all the good things that they have done, and then he tells them of all the things that they haven't done very well and they need to work on. Sound familiar? It's the exact same structure that Domitian used at the beginning of his games. So let's take a little closer at uh, one of these churches that he writes to. So the first one is the church in Ephesus. Now, John praises them for the work that they have done and how they have pushed back against false preaching. So he affirms them first, right? Then he tells them what they are doing wrong. John says, you have abandoned your first love. But at the same time, John says he is grateful that they stand against the Nicolaitans' teaching. So what, is, what does all of this mean? So Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia. It was the seat of the proconsul, who would have had military power at its time, and it was an important early Christian center. There was a large population of Christians there. So for the church in Ephesus, they were in a dilemma. They lived in a city where it was really difficult to not worship Domitian. But based on their faith in God, they couldn't worship Domitian either because only God is Lord of heaven and earth. So it's in the midst of this conundrum that a group of people known as the Nicolaitans began to rise up. And what made this group so unique was that they had come to terms with the idea of worshiping Domitian or really any other Roman ruler publicly while convincing themselves that it was okay because deep down in their hearts, they really worshiped God and were only doing so, were only praising the Roman leaders uh, for the sake of staying alive. See, for them, it was more important to outwardly act as if they supported Domitian, but inwardly only believe in God. And as the persecution grew worse and worse, the Nicolaitans tried harder and harder to convince Christians to do the same. So this is what John means by they have lost their first love. At one point, everyone was all in for Jesus. But now, as things have become difficult, they were willing to put Jesus on the back burner for the sake of avoiding suffering. But there is good news. Based on this letter, we get the sense that the church in Ephesus hated the Nicolaitans' teaching and refused to fall in line with them. And so John praises the fact that they were, there were still people seeking to be truly devoted to God. And he felt like that was something worth praising. 
So are you beginning to see how from the very beginning, as the church read this letter, they would have immediately known that John was making a connection to these games, and they were all so aware of this, right? It would have been easy for them to make those connections. Context matters. Now, let me see if I can give you a modern day example of this uh, context matters thing. So I want you to imagine uh, what I'm about to tell you and uh, picture in your head what I'm talking about. So early on a Saturday morning, tents went up all over the place as a protection from the horrible heat. It was so hot that there was an unquenchable thirst all around. So much so that some of the younger people around had to end their day early because they could no longer keep quenching their thirst. But then, out of nowhere, the sounds of trumpets and drums began to sound, and the louder they got, the bigger the crowd got to see what was happening. Then three black chariots emerged from around two mounds, and out of these chariots there came mighty warriors dressed in fine linen, ready to face their opponents in the valley of death. They marched down the hill as they prepared to go into battle and bring a victory to their people. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, if you live in Louisiana, uh, you, have, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you, you're thinking, what is, what is this uh, about? See, if you live in Louisiana and you've ever been to Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge, which is our uh, LSU football stadium here, you were probably able to make the connections, right? The mounds are the Indian mounds, and the hill is the hill that the band marches down on, and uh, the, the team as well. The, the three chariots are uh, the buses that they roll in on, and the, the warriors are the players, right? You, you can make those connections because you understand the context. Context matters. And for the early church, as John wrote these letters, the early church would have easily been able to make these connections, just as many of us would have been able to make the connections with what I said earlier. So now that you understand these connections, let's take one more dive into the contextual connections that are present in this letter. So after Domitian would speak to every priest and give them their report of what they were doing, uh, particularly what they were doing well and what they, what they weren't doing well, they would all lay their crowns at the feet of Domitian as a representation that he was the true Lord, and they would worship him, which would lead to the entire crowd in that stadium worshiping Domitian as well. And then after all of this, the games would finally begin. And these games would include many different types of games, but one in particular was horse racing, in which, much like today, people would bring their, their horses and a jockey would race a horse for them. But here's something important to know, something interesting, and you'll understand later why it's interesting. It, there were these four horses that would run each race, and each, fo uh, each horse was dressed in a different color, representing four different teams. So four, color, four horses of four different colors. So keep all this in mind as I read this text to you from the book of Revelation. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like emerald. Okay, so let me stop here for a second. When John looks up, there's a throne as in heaven, and the one seated on the throne is depicted by precious stones and metals that were used to emphasize the splendor of God. Do you see a connection here between what John sees and what the people would see at the games? Walking into the games, it was obvious to see who was in charge because that person was sitting up on the throne. And in this vision, John is able to clearly see who really is in charge, except in his vision, it's not Domitian, 
It's the one true God. So let's keep going. Verse four says this. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head. Okay, let me stop here again. You see another connection? Just like in the games, the priests were seated around the throne with golden crowns uh, and, and worshiping, with, uh, worshiping the one that was seated on the throne. Without context, we don't fully understand what's happening here, but the people reading this, the people of its time, would have instantly known the connections that John was making. Just like there's priests seated around Domitian, there's priests seated around this throne, the throne of God. Okay, let's keep reading again. Starting with verse 5, it says this. Coming from the throne are the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Okay, let me stop here because there's another connection. The early church would have been very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Many of them would have had it memorized. Now, this means that as John is telling them about the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder... Their minds would have immediately gone to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, when Moses speaks with God and we're told that God was not only present in the lightning and thunder, but that God responded through the thunder. In other words, John is reminding the people that the one who sits on the throne in his vision is the actual one true God, unlike Domitian. But it doesn't end there. When John says that in front of the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, his audience would have also known that he was referring to the image of heaven found in Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel saw a dome like a shining crystal sitting below the throne. You see, every little thing that John speaks about, his audience would have been able to connect to their own context and their own knowledge. Now, later on in the text, the elders bow down and they worship the one seated on the throne, just as in the games. The connections even go as far as John seeing four horses of four different colors, just as Domitian's games would have had four horses with four different colors. The connections are endless, and I'm not going to keep reading through the scriptures because we could do this all day long. But overall, but overall I want you to hear me say this. Context matters especially as we read through the book of Revelation. So as we continue to dive into the book of Revelation, remember that we do not fully understand the context of John's words as the early church did. And because we don't understand the context, it's easy for us to make assumptions about this revelation. But more than likely, our assumptions will be off base. So the best thing we can do when we find ourselves stuck is to search the context. And we will find that it changes everything about what is being said. So in case you're still struggling a bit to understand these opening chapters, let me lay it out a little bit more clear. And by the way, if you're still stuck, it's okay. It's taken me years and years and years to better understand this, and I guarantee you that in a couple years, I will understand even more about this book. But here's the basic message of John in these opening chapters. John tells his audience, you have been led to believe that Domitian is the true ruler of heaven and earth, but don't listen to him. The one true Lord, the one of all the, that all the scriptures talks about, is seated in his heavenly throne and is reigning from there. So hold fast, because at the end of the day, it is God who really sits on the throne and is in complete control. And that means that no matter how difficult things may get, everything will be okay. Now look, next week, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of what John is saying. But for now, I want you to rest assured that what is coming is actually good news because God is sitting on the throne 
And the people know this because they understand the connections that God, that John has made to their context. I'll see you next week as we continue this conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mid-City Church Sermoncast. If you would like to dive deeper into today's topic, visit midcity.church sermoncast to find a home sheet that goes along with this message. On the home sheet, you will find scriptures, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge that goes along with this sermoncast. If this has been a helpful resource to help you grow in your faith, we want to invite you to support our ministry here at Mid-City Church by giving today. To give, text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to the number 225-307-0662. Thanks and see you next week.